if you are new to Salt Company, I just want to say like, welcome. Honestly, thank you that you're here. It means a lot to us that you would trust us, that you would give up a Thursday night to even be in this room. And if you're back, welcome back. We're stoked you're here. We want to have a ton of fun together this year. And also, though we don't take ourselves seriously, we want to take Jesus seriously. And so, as you see behind me, we have this lovely series tonight called Foundations. It's the, we're in week one of a three-week series. You see these little symbols. I'm going to walk through them very quickly, let you know where we're going. And here's my ask, okay? If you're just checking us out, you're not sure about this whole, like, Christianity thing, let alone, do I want to be in community? What the heck is Salt Company? Give us three weeks, all right, give us these next three weeks, lean in to these messages, give us a shot, and if at the end of three weeks you're like, that ain't it, that's great. Like, I will, I will shake your hand, I'll say thank you for coming, and you are welcome back anytime. But would love for you guys to stick with us the next three weeks. Sound good? Yeah. Love it. Okay, so three foundations that when we look at how we do ministry and why we do ministry the way we do, it's built really upon these three. The first is the Bible. So we would say that we look to Scripture to shape our lives. We actually take God at his word. The second is community. That's the little heart behind me, you know. Love you guys. Uh, We would say that we want to share life and grow together through vulnerability and compassion. And then the third is mission. We believe that God has given us incredible purpose, purpose that far outlasts this life. And here is our mission. We want to reach the lost, people that don't know Jesus. We want to help them know who Jesus is. And we want to help people who already know Jesus but are struggling to grow up in their faith become mature disciples. So we're going to walk through those three the next three weeks. And tonight we're starting with anybody? The Bible, yeah. How many of you guys are excited about the Bible? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. You kind of convinced me there, but I think if if we're honest, if I just asked you, like, how's your Bible reading going? Most of us in this room actually wouldn't say we're that excited about the Bible. Uh, If you're anything like me, the Bible is not something that you at a gut level are like, yes, give me more. Come on. Like, I want more. And that's coming from a guy that has followed Jesus for 10 years, and I am on staff here as a pastor. I mean, preparing for this, I was super convicted by not having my affections stirred enough for this book, the Bible. How many of you guys love textbooks? None of you. Nobody loves textbooks. It, it, you kind of go through this rhythm when you're in college, at least I know I did. As a freshman, you go and you buy textbooks because it's on the syllabus, you want to be a rule follower, you buy them, you get them, and you read them because you want to be the best student you can. And by the time you're a sophomore, you're like, I'm not buying them, right? I might rent them just in case. And then by the time you're a senior, you're like, nah, not buying, not renting, I'll borrow from somebody if I'm desperate. Because textbooks suck, right? They suck, they're boring, they're hard to read, and as you begin to even try to read it, you guys have done this before, you read like three or four pages, and before you know it, you're like, I don't even know what just happened over the last 20 minutes, and you start over again. They're awful. And if we start to think about how we read our Bibles, 
it's not much different. Like, we treat the Bible just like another textbook. Like, is, is this book just, you know, Christianity 101? Are we just reading this as a textbook, information to gather? How can we follow more rules? There's my Bible reading plan. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so, what makes this Bible not just a textbook? Because it's not. It's so much more than that. People on the other side of the world are being imprisoned and are literally risking their lives to get their hands on this book. Like nations are banning it. They're pulling it off the shelves. They're burning churches down because they don't want people to have access to a Bible. What's up with that? Meanwhile, 88% of American households have a Bible in them, but only 37% of Americans read the Bible more than once a week. It's collecting dust. So what do these people on the other side of the world understand about this book that we don't? We have to be curious about that, right? Like, why would people die to get their hands on a book when we won't even pull it off the family bookshelf and read it more than once a week. And we have, to, we have to face reality. You are likely not going to die trying to read the Bible. You live in America. We have religious freedom. We should praise God for that. But even if it's not, how can I risk my life to get my hands on a Bible? We should ask, why is this book worth reading? Why is it worth reading every day of my life until I die or Jesus comes back? We have to ask that question. So tonight we are going to be in Psalm 119. So if you do this little exercise here, split your Bible in half and open it, you should be close to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, it's an Old Testament book. We are in chapter 119. It's the longest book of the longest chapter of the Bible. And what we see here is compiled acrostic poems. So Psalms is a book of poetry. Psalm 119 is actually a collection of 22 different poems lined up one after another. And one commentator studying the scripture, he said, these sections within Psalm 119 are not like a chain where one link connects to another, but rather it's like a string of pearls. Each stanza, each poem, has its own intrinsic value. And the purpose of this psalm is to glorify God and to magnify his word, the Bible, to bring our attention to the beauty and wonder that we have this book. I mean, there are eight different words used for the Bible throughout Psalm 119, but the Bible is mentioned in 171 of the 176 verses. Tonight we're looking at the 12th stanza, verse 89. And it is a letter known as Lamed. So each of these stanzas, actually each poem is attributed to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then each line is connected to a letter of the alphabet. This is an a magnificent work. And tonight we're talking about Lamed, or in American language here, L. We tracking? Okay, got a few L's for you. 
when it comes to why we should read the scriptures. Verses are going to be on the screen behind me. I want to talk through three L's that make the Bible worth reading and giving our lives to. So we're going to start in verse 89. The word of God says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. Here's the first L that you need to know tonight, that the word of God is lasting. The word of God is lasting. Maybe you noticed all the time-based language here, talking about forever, your word is fixed in the heavens, your faithfulness endures to all generations, it stands fast, by your appointment they stand this day. The word of God is lasting, Unlike the majority of things in this world, right? Pleasure doesn't last. You've tried it, it doesn't last. People don't last. Some of us, that hits really close to home. People don't last. Possessions don't last. Your iPhone is the newest iPhone for like two months, and then they come out with a mini, a super mini, and a mega, right? Anymore, planets don't last. What happened to Pluto, right? Like, science changes, we are, we are longing for something that's unchanging. The fact that things are changing all the time around us actually creates within us the sense of unrest and a question of what can I trust in? What can I put my faith in? What can I count on? And I want you to know tonight, you can count on the word of God. It is lasting. It is unchanging. And I want to look at three words, specifically in verse 89, to help draw this out a little bit more. So the first one is forever. Forever. Now, maybe this is obvious to you, maybe not. The word forever means forever. <laughs> and this is not just looking forward into the future, it's looking backward into antiquity. Like, from the beginning of time, God's word has existed, and moving forward into the future, God's word will last forever. I mean, here we see in these verses that God established the earth. God established the earth. Do you guys know how God established the earth? When he created in Genesis 1, do you know how he did it? Any guesses? How did God create? Did he snap his fingers? What did he do? He spoke. God spoke. We serve a God that speaks to us. And he created everything. Therefore, when you look at verse 91, it says, all things are your servants. God has created everything, and he tells everything how it is supposed to function, but he does this by speaking. That's phenomenal. Forever, O oh Lord, your word, your word that God has spoken to us that shows us something about his character. That he is not just big and powerful enough to create, but he is close enough, kind enough to speak to us as human creatures. Right In Genesis 2, he's talking to Adam and Eve, and he's talking about how to tend the garden and, and the rules to follow, right? Like, hey, all of this is yours. You have dominion. Just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and life of good and evil. He wants to actually acknowledge that he has an order. He knows how we flourish. 
We're not left to guessing when it comes to who God is or what he expects of us. He's spoken. And he's not just forever. He's not just creator. He's not just close and kind. We see that he is constant. This word fixed. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It means that he is constant. He is unchanging. He is forever faithful. And the devil actually was trying to sow seeds of doubt in Genesis 3 that God is not constant because when he came to Adam and Eve, he said, did God really say that? Are you sure? And then he's like, well, he didn't mean it. You won't really die, will, he? will you? Like, this is what he meant. He's sowing seeds of doubt that God is going to change his mind. Maybe he's a liar. And when you get to the end of Genesis 3, you figure out God is not a liar, and he doesn't change his mind. He promised death, and here's what he does. He kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Death is separation from God. God is true on his word. He is unchanging. And though this is evident in the first three chapters of Genesis, we see this all throughout Scripture. I want to point out just a couple different verses to you. The first is in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Like, this Bible, this book that we have is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God, written through human hands, but God himself penning these words. And then in 1 Peter Uh, Chapter 1, verse 24, it says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Like God, through the hand of Peter, is acknowledging everything around us is going to fade and die, but the word of the Lord is going to remain forever. It's constant, it's unchanging, it's not going away. And if you are like, Jordan, this seems like you're kind of building a case for the Bible using the Bible. Why don't you give me some like empirical evidence? I'm glad you asked. How about this crazy idea of 66 books being written by over 40 authors spanning three continents written in three original languages over 1,600 years, telling one cohesive story that has no contradictions or errors. Now do you think it's inspired? I mean, what if I told you the Bible contained over 2,000 prophecies, which are forecasted promises that were fulfilled hundreds if not thousands of years after their writing? I mean, the probability of this happening is 10 raised to the 20,000th power. You could say impossible. And when you look at the original manuscript evidence, the Bible has more support, a shorter time between the original writing and the surviving copies, and more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of ancient or classic literature combined. This book is incredibly validated both when you just look at raw data like math and when you look at the historical evidence of manuscripts. But maybe this isn't enough for us even. We're like, man, yeah, it's still up to chance. 
How about the fact that the Bible has withstood the attempts of kings, dictators, and entire societies trying to abolish it, and yet it remains the best-selling book of all time? I mean, translated into more than 3,000 languages and an estimated 5 to 7 billion copies sold. What about the fact that the Bible has transformed murderers, tyrants, and entire nations because it resonates with the truest part of the human soul? I mean, we can't really argue (laughs) with that. Not just with numbers, but with names, with real stories, with entire nations turning from immorality to becoming godly places and godly people. This book is incredible. And this should drive us insane. <laughs> Honestly, this should drive us insane that we, we hear these statistics, we hear these stories, and yet, though the Bible is accessible on an iPhone, we don't read it. We don't even look at it. We want to go to YouTube. We want to watch a video on TikTok instead. That should drive us insane. I mean, even if you don't want to trust the Bible, you should at least say, that begs reason to read it. Right? The best-selling book of all time that's withstood thousands of years of trying to have it shut up and shut down, we should want to read the Bible. But it's not just enough that the Word of God is lasting. The Word of God is also life-giving. Here's how the psalm continues. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The word perish means died. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. So as you look at that section, the words like law and precepts and testimonies are all talking about the scriptures. And the author here of this psalm is saying, God's word is life-giving. It is life-giving. How many of you have ever thought about the Bible that way? Like, oh, this is super life-giving to read. (laughs) Not a lot of us. I mean, when I think about the Bible, when I was in your shoes, I always thought the Bible was a list of rules to follow. And rules to follow actually didn't mean like life-giving. It kind of meant buzzkill. Like, the Bible's here to kill the party, right? Like, the way that I can actually experience something life-giving is not more rules but less rules. Freedom is I create my own path and my own journey, not someone telling me what to do. That does not sound like freedom. And that's what the world around you is offering you, you know? Don't let someone else tell you what true is, you know? What is truth? Create your own truth. That's a bunch of bogus It does not lead to freedom. It leads to anxiety and depression. It detaches us from reality. If everybody has their own truth, then we are all on an island. We're all isolated. We have nothing to cling to. We feel the responsibility to carry this burden. We have nobody that we can see eye to eye with because we all have our own truth, and you don't have to buy that lie because there is such thing as truth. It's the Word of God. And there is freedom in the scriptures. I mean, many of you have maybe heard this analogy before, but if I said, hey, what does freedom look like on a highway? Is it just erasing the middle line? Everybody drives wherever they want? No! 
You know what's going to happen? You're going to die. If people can drive wherever they want, you're going to die. You're going to get hit head on. But what if freedom actually looks like having a lane to run in? Helping you go where you're supposed to go in the safest and most flourishing way possible. The word of God is for our flourishing. And because God has created, he actually gets to tell us what is best for our flourishing. You guys are aware of a cold medicine called NyQuil. You ever heard of it? You ever had it? I know I have. I think I was addicted at one point in high school. Confession. I wasn't planning on telling you guys that. But um, yeah, NyQuil. You know, when used as prescribed, it's phenomenal. It's meant to help alleviate cold symptoms and help you sleep through the night. Because when you have a cold, you're all nasty, you know, crusty, you can't sleep well, and you need a good night's sleep to actually begin to mend from your cold, so you take NyQuil. Well, here's when NyQuil doesn't really work super well, when you cook chicken with it, right? NyQuil chicken, that was a TikTok trend a couple of years ago. It blew up. It's like, guys, what if we started boiling our chicken in NyQuil? Can you believe it? It'll be incredible. I mean, all the alcohol cooks out and, you know, you just get some sleepy chicken. Well, no, that's not how it works. People were watching this video on TikTok making NyQuil chicken, and it was leading to incredible breathing problems. It was leading to people having seizures, even people dying, dying, because NyQuil was not intended to cook your chicken in. It was not used as prescribed. And though we can laugh at that analogy, here's what's happening in the world around us. The Bible is not being used as prescribed. It's not being used as prescribed. It's being disobeyed, it's being twisted, it's being used out of context, it's being neglected altogether, and here's what it's leading to. Not just sickness, Though it is leading to that, this sickness called sin, which leads to brokenness within us, brokenness all around us, it's leading to incredible sickness, but much more than that, it's leading to death. A real spiritual death, separation from God, just like Genesis 3. A couple different verses in the book of Romans say it this way. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we have misused the Bible. We have not followed its prescription. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 starts by saying, the wages of sin is death. What we earn by not obeying God's word is death. And so what's our hope? <laughs> like, is our hope now just to say, God, I understand your word is for my flourishing. I haven't obeyed it. And now I just need to do everything I can to follow it as perfectly as possible to try and now create a way for me not to die but for me to have life. That sounds exhausting. And the good news is that's not the answer because here's how these passages continue. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're not saved by following a bunch of rules, but by a gift. 
Grace means unmerited favor. You don't earn a gift. Ephesians 2 says it this way. For by grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So, we acknowledge that our ability to have life and life forever is not a matter of us obeying God's word perfectly, but by grace through faith. And now the question is, okay, if we're saved by grace through faith, how do we have faith? I'm glad you asked. Romans 10 says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing what? The word, the word. We need the Bible to even have faith, faith in Christ. But it's incredible, you guys. This book is not just telling us how to live a better life. Though if you would look at its commands and take them seriously, trust me when I say your life will flourish more on this side of heaven. But if all we ever do is look at it as, you know, how can we live our best life now and, and flourish in this life, and we miss what it's actually designed to do, it's all for nothing. Here's what the Word of God is actually designed to do. Point you to and help you encounter the one who can not just give you a better life here on earth, but who can give you eternal life forever. His name is Jesus Christ. And I want to just peel back the layers and show you how the Bible actually tells us that all of Scripture is pointing towards one person. His name is Jesus. few verses, we'll put them up on the screen. John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God became flesh This perfection, this perfect law became a man. His name is Jesus, full of grace and truth. Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did not come to do away with the Bible, but to show, I have come to fulfill the scriptures. John 5 There's Jews that are seeking to kill Jesus, and here's what he says to them. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. All of scripture is pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus, as we know, lives this perfect life, dies a gruesome death because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus acknowledged, okay, There's two ways we can go about this. Either you can die or I can die in your place. And he did that. He took the cross. He took the wrath of God. And then here's what else happened. He rose again. Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he resurrects. And there's these disciples walking on the road to Emmaus who are kind of arguing about, man, we thought Jesus was going to be this political savior. We thought he was here to free us from all this oppression. And Now he's dead, and people are telling us the tomb is empty, but I don't get it. And Jesus shows up to these men, and here's what he tells them. He's like, 
Do you not understand? Are you so foolish? All of Scripture was telling you that the Messiah, the Savior, had to come and he had to die in order to bring us back into right relationship with God. And here's what Jesus says through his word, Luke 24. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow! That from Genesis to Revelation, all of scripture is, yes, prescribing a way for us as humans to flourish in this life. But here's what's true. Flourishing is not about following rules, but being close to your God. Being able to behold and be near to God now and forever. And so if the Bible is lasting and life-giving, here's what else is true. The word of God is limitless in value. You see that here in Psalm 119, the very last verse of our section here. The author says, I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. He's acknowledging, I cannot even wrap my mind around how valuable the word of God is. A man by the name of David in Psalm 19 says this. I'm going to just read it over. You should be on the screen. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover them, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is a great reward. David looks at the scriptures and he's like, I'll sell it all to have the word of God. I mean, it revives my soul. It gives me rejoicing. It helps me see clearly. It gives me wisdom, even for the most foolish and simple of people. The word of God is more to be treasured than gold. It is sweeter to the taste than the sweetest thing you will ever find on this earth. It is limitless in value. And so, why should we read our Bible? Why should we give our life to it? You could say, God's word is lasting, life-giving, and limitless in value. God's word is lasting, life-giving, and limitless in value. There leaves no question as to why we should read this book when you actually acknowledge those realities. The best-selling book of all time that's been translated and kept for thousands of years. The one that tells us how to flourish in life, but more than that, points us to a Savior who can give us life forever. The one who actually shows us that this word is better than anything else in this life we have in our possession. And so what do we do with it? I want to give you a few different applications. The first is just to honestly repent. The word repent means turn, turn from. And I've had repenting to do as I've prepared this sermon. Like repenting of just understanding God's word is far sweeter than I give it credit for. Repenting of thinking that I know better than God with certain areas of my life. That's just not true. I have to turn from my selfish way of thinking and self-built kingdom and say, God, 
I cannot be trusted, but you can because your word is unchanging. You are faithful to all generations. From eternity past to eternity future, you can be trusted. Help me to stop trusting myself and help me to trust in you. That's what repentance looks like. To trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. Secondly, to read. I mean, it sounds simple, but to actually begin reading your Bible. I want to give you some really practical tips on how to read your Bible. The first, I want to give you three Ps. All right, the first one is have a plan. Have a plan. Pick a book that you're going to start reading. And maybe you want to read heading to heading or chapter to chapter. You don't have to read a lot. Just start reading and have a plan. The second is have a people. Do it with other people. The Bible is meant to be read in community. Yes, we can read it alone. That's a gift. But it is also a privilege to have so many people around you who also want to read their Bible and may have trouble understanding what it means. Read in community. Feed off each other. What did you get out of it? What do you think this means? Read with people. And then lastly, this one's tough. Make it a priority. Make it a priority. I cannot believe how many times I talk to people and I say, have you read your Bible yet? And they said, I don't have time. Yes, you do. Show me your screen time on your phone. Boy, right? Like, you have time to read your Bible. It's just not a priority for you. You are making YouTube a greater priority than hearing from and encountering God. Make it a priority. Put it on your schedule. Don't eat breakfast until you read your Bible. Do what you need to do to make it a priority. And I want to give you a quick acronym. If you're new to Bible reading, to just give you something to like take hold of as you read. It's, it's REAP. R-E-A-P. I'll explain it quickly. The R stands for read really hard. <laughs> um, write down what you're reading. So maybe tomorrow you say, I want to read Mark 1. So at the top of your page, R, Mark 1. The E is examine, examine. And this is an opportunity for you to be asking the questions, who wrote this book? Who are they writing to? Under what circumstances? What words or phrases are repeated throughout this text? What does it mean to me in my own language? Examine. The A is apply. The word of God is not just for our information, but is for our transformation. It's not just meant to fill our heads, but to actually change our lives. So to ask the question, how does this text challenge the way I think, challenge the way I act, challenge the way I speak? What is it calling me to do to better follow Jesus? And then the P stands for prayer. To actually pray that God would help you not only understand, but apply this text in your everyday life. Reap. Read, examine, apply, and pray. And here's your last application point. It is to restart. I mean, many of you in this room have started Bible reading plans and you failed. And you get really down on yourself because you think for whatever reason God is scraping the gold star off of your sticker chart. He's not, <laughs> okay? God doesn't work on sticker charts. He wants communion with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to be close to you. So rather than getting hung up on now my plan is screwed, start over. 
Start a new plan. Pick back up where you left off. Understand that God just wants to speak to you. He's not concerned about how well you can follow rules. He wants you to be close to him. Restart. And if you read four days this week and then you miss a day, restart again. Restart again. Restart again. Commit to not missing more than one day in a row of Bible reading. Restart. 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 And here's what will happen. Salt Company, if we would be a people that actually take God at his word, we would not see this book as something that's boring. (laughs) The Bible is not a book to be bored by. It's an encounter with God to be enjoyed. That's what it is. And we would start to actually view our Bibles that way. That we would be so excited to get in our Bibles because it's not about a list of rules to follow, but a God to encounter. That we would start to shape our lives as we just let God speak to us and let him work in us and through us. We're going to get into Romans 12 next week, talking about community. But one thing that Romans 12 talks about is not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That that would be true of us. That God would transform our hearts and our minds to become more like him and to experience life as we should created people of God. So let's be a people this week that are not just in God's word, but of God's word. Sound good? Love it. I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you that you are, you are not just big and powerful. You are not just a creator, though you are that, but you are a creator that is kind. Though you could have created in any way possible, you decided to speak creation into existence. And you did not just speak things into existence and then stand far off. You have spoken to us through your word. You've given us the Bible. God, to not just know about how we're created to flourish, but to know our Savior. To behold Jesus. To look at the simple fact that he was perfect when we were not. That he took the wages of sin and he died and that he resurrected, that we can know you and enjoy you forever. And so, God, I pray for myself. I pray for each heart in this room, that as we just consider the fact that your word is lasting and life-giving, that we would truly believe it's limitless in value, that we would commit to communing with you, that we would long to know your word so that we can encounter you. And God, help us not just to read, to store up information on our heads, but actually transform us Give us the peace and joy and fulfillment we've been looking for in all the wrong places because we're satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.